0: Whether it's a diplomatic impasse or an emotional rift that needs fixing, there's nothing like breaking bread to bring people together. Sharing food from one communal dish has the power to unite and create a tangible kind of unity you rarely find beyond the dining table. I've often dwelt on the provenance of the word hospitality, which, we often forget, derives from the very meaning of what it is to heal and restore. It's this principle that's been the driving force behind many of the stories you'll find on Confect Corner and was certainly a motivation for our guest Shazza Shahid's business, Our Place, a cookware brand whose dexterous always pan has become a cult product on stovetops around the world. Perhaps it's no surprise that Shahid came from the world of politics before she launched Our Place and shares her thoughts on mission-driven businesses and the importance of cooking with soul. This episode is also a burst of summer optimism, sunny sojourns and inspiration. We'll ponder on the joy of studio pottery, the power of African fashion, and we'll take the temperature of the art world with an incisive review of Art Basel and its changing demographics. And finally, we learn about the history of ice from the cold houses of ancient Persia to the wonders of the modern freezer. This is Confet Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove.
1: Pottery is one of those wonderful things which you, you can come to it completely without any experience whatsoever and if you are taught um, a nice technique you can pretty much end up making a pot.
2: Shaved, cubed, crushed, shaken, stirred, on the rocks, summer rituals of aperitivo and romantic dates in darkened basements would be nowhere
3: without the art of a cocktail. We've always loved gathering and connecting and sharing food and long believed that when you break bread with someone, the sense of difference starts to fall away and you are connected in a way that, that's far deeper than I think through through almost any other act. Welcome
0: to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host Sophie Grove in London and I'm joined here in the studio by Gillian Tobias and also by Confect's style director Marcella Pallock, in our Zurich office. Hello to you, great to have you both back in the studio. We had a little month off <laughs> last time. Marcella, you've been on the road, on holiday, travelling for work. It's very nice to have you back down the line.
4: Yes, hello from the lake. Today, grey in grey, but usually blue skies and perfect water. Waiting for you, Sophie. When do you come to Zurich? I've heard
0: the bodies are open and summer's already begun. And Gillian, lovely to see you here in London.
5: Oh, well, yes, I do feel very lucky because I have been ricocheting uh, with work projects from France to Italy. But it's so nice to be back at Midori House. And there's a great buzz around the building today with people eating outside, al fresco and pages turning. It's a really nice atmosphere at Midori House today. Let's
0: start with you, Gillian. What's caught your eye this month?
5: Well, because I was filming in Italy, I just thought it would be crazy for me to not pop up to Milan during Salone de Mobile. My favourite little exhibition I saw was in a wonderful old apartment in the Brera. And it is Lucy Eames, the daughter of Charles and Ray Eames. She devoted her life to preserving their legacy, but she's an artist in her own right. And she did furniture design and graphics and beautiful cut out butterflies and artworks. And it was only recently that the family, in the process of their archiving, kind of rediscovered her work and there were photographs and notebooks and wonderful objets d'art and then they decided that what better place but Milan to kind of do a little tribute to her and use the wonderful ambiance of an apartment to be an ode to her. Her work and her artwork, and hopefully this will be the beginning of many that will kind of elevate her and bring her up in her own right as an artist and a designer, and not just known for preserving the design legacy of her parents.
0: It's interesting because, same with Charlotte Perriand's daughter, Panille. she is dedicated to her mother's work. It is kind of a calling for them, but also, if you have your own creative drive then is that really enough? That kind of hereditary creativity, if that exists, I
5: don't know. And in a way, children of famous parents often don't want to play off the fame of their parents, so they keep their art a bit under the bushel. And so it takes the next generation to say, no, you are good in your own right, you know, and put it in a spotlight. It's really quite lovely.
0: Marcella, tell us about what you've been doing and thinking about this month. I have a new favourite café, Café Parisi,
4: is in the Centro Storico, the historic center of Nardo in the southern Puglia. They not only serve good cappuccino and gelato, but also great aperitivi and excellent Italian dishes like vitello tonato, the typical frisa or insalata di polpo e carciofi. So and what I love is that actually you could stay there all day and look at the piazza from early morning cappuccino to late evening dinner, you can stay there. And how about you, Sophie? What did you find?
0: Well, this week in London, I've been to the opening of a very interesting exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is Africa Fashion. And it seems to me to be a very important moment for fashion and for the museum, because it obviously has that Victorian colonial association. And they really defining themselves with a new approach to the existing collections, but also to contemporary fashion talent coming from countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia. And I've travelled so much in Africa, particularly in Ethiopia and Ghana, in fact. And I've always been so inspired by the fabrics and just the sheer talent artists, but also seamstress and just incredible potential of that continent. So it's wonderful to see that in London. It's interesting. It's not just the
5: designs
0: that are so striking, but it's these really original techniques. And this exhibition is very cerebral. It goes back and looks at some of the kind of pioneers of African fashion as that there- broadly terming it, in the 60s, uh, you know, Moroccan couture, people who have been pretty much written out of the history of modern fashion. But then also looking at the kind of complications and the poetry, but also the connotations of, of fabric and wax cloth and kente and all of the different prints that they actually do have sometimes some colonial histories, sometimes some very striking national identities that have come synonymous with independence and so there's so many politics and just complexity that makes this exhibition much more than just a kind of fashion salute now it's time for a very special interview after winning a scholarship to stanford sheza shahid thought her path to successful entrepreneurship would be a conventional one However, when a close friend, Malala Yousafzai, was shot by the Taliban, those plans were thrown a little off course, and she was onboarded to co-found the Malala Fund. In 2019, Chesa left
5: the foundation to launch the mission-driven business she had always dreamt of founding, kitchenware company Our Place. Inspired by a passionate belief in the power of cooking to bring people together, the brand found its keenest success with the nifty and slick-looking Always Pan.
0: Designed to replace eight different types of cookware, this one pot that does it all, perhaps rather fittingly, has been a talking point at dinner parties in recent months. A little earlier, Sheza joined me in the studio and started by telling
3: me where the journey to launching our place began. I was fortunate to get to move to the United States when I was 18 on a scholarship to Stanford University. And that's when I was first exposed to startups. I'd never seen a female entrepreneur. I, you know, there was no equivalent of the word in my native language. It was, you know, businessman or trader, but entrepreneurship wasn't yet around me. And at Stanford, it was everywhere. And that's when I realized that if you built a business that was infused with mission and values, that you could sometimes have a much further reaching impact than through the nonprofit world. And that's when I began to become really intrigued by this idea of mission-driven business and I knew that I would build a mission-driven business one day. I took my first job out of college at McKinsey, moved out to Dubai to be closer to home, thought I would do the whole McKinsey training, go to business school, get my resume nice and thick before I started my own thing. But the universe had other plans and about a year into my time there my dear friend Malala Yousafzai was shot by the Taliban and that turned my world upside down as well and I ended up quitting my job to stay with her and to co-found the Malala Fund at her and her father's Asking and serve as founding CEO. And it's some of the most impactful and beautiful work that I've ever done. And that organization is now helping girls around the world access an education. But I always knew that I was still very drawn to business and startups. And while I deeply respect the impact that nonprofits have, trillions are traded in the financial markets every day. And nonprofits are just a fraction of that. And if we're to solve the world's most pressing challenges, we need businesses to step up and have a more positive impact. And so using business and the financial markets as a force for good has always been something I've been really interested in. And you know, our place has sort of been, I think, a long time coming. If I just go back to Stanford, because I think a lot is talked about that the kind of
0: methodology there seems to be very, very important to sort of shaping your world and your sort of stance as an entrepreneur. Can you tell me a bit about that and how you think that is a formation in some ways?
3: I think it's environment for sure. Just, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And, and I saw people building businesses and I, I considered it for the first time. And I had never even had that in my imagination of what was possible for a girl born in my world. But I think also it is a little bit of access. You know, when I was given a scholarship to Stanford, yes, I was still, you know, a middle class immigrant brown girl from Pakistan. But I was a little bit more a part of a world where maybe I could call a venture capitalist one day. And, you know, I did. I called hundreds. And, it wasn't easy, but eventually, you know, people started to believe in what I was building and it was still hard, but by being at this university, I was a, one door opened and I was given my first seat at the table and I was given a full scholarship by a woman who I deeply admire and respect. You know, she believed I should have the opportunity to go to the same school that her children did, even though my parents couldn't afford to pay for it. I think for me, as I look back at my life, a lot of the most important work that I've done has been simply making a space at the table for someone else. And I've been able to do that very often because someone helped make a seat at the table for me. And that's why so much of what we do at our place is really about building bigger tables.
0: Tell us about the brand, because it's incredibly compelling. It's a very unique selling point in a sense. Like I'm very drawn to it because of the sustainability element, but I know that there are other sort of pillars within the brand that make it quite unique in that kind of kitchenware <laughs> realm. Tell me
3: a bit about our place. It comes from a very personal place, and, and I think first and foremost, as someone who's migrated and moved from place to place, which is also true of my partner, you know we literally found our place in our new communities by cooking food, having people come over and and breaking bread together. And we've always loved gathering and connecting and sharing food and long believed that when you break bread with someone, the sense of difference starts to fall away and you are connected in a way that that's far deeper than I think through almost any other act. And when we looked around at the landscape of kitchenware and industry, there just wasn't a celebration of culture, of identity, of heritage, of where we come from, of, you know, so much of the product design was rooted in make the most complicated dish as fast as you can against a timer on television, competing with other Michelin-starred chefs. You know, you walk into a kitchenware store, for example, and if you ask them today, hey, I just got my first apartment what do i need to cook they'll probably point you to a 16-piece cookware app. they'll say here's your skillet for your fried eggs and here's your saucepan for your pasta and here's your saucier for your sauces and which home cook needs a saucier for their sauces but the industry has been designing for professional cooking And selling us more and more things, and saying we need all these things, and our table needs to look a certain way for us to be adequate. And we sort of flipped that script and said, you know what? Let's just start with one pan that does it all. You can fry now, you can make some pasta, you know, you can make a dish from your heritage, and you can take it from stovetop to table and have a dinner party and make it about joy and culture and identity and imperfection and joy and, you know, mess and celebration and that was really what our place was founded on and, and that is what guides every part of the business because you know if we want to help people cook and share more meals more easily and more joyfully then all our products need to be designed to make cooking easier to make gathering easier to be functionally innovative to be high quality to be beautiful and joyful and expressive You know, if we want to help people gather and connect then we need to make sure we're doing our part to preserve the environment so that we have a planet that we can gather and connect on.
0: And for those listeners who are thinking, how did you do it? I mean, it's a profitable, very well-regarded brand, pretty quickly, and you've largely been online. How did you scale this? How did you really make this much impact so quickly?
3: Yeah, I think we were fortunate to have people who fell in love with the products, who fell in love with the brand, and who felt seen by the brand. You know, we would celebrate Nouruz and Noche Buena and Lunar New Year and Shabbat and Ramzan all, you know, side by side. And I think very often people would look at these stories and say, oh, my goodness, I I see myself. Right. I see my family. I see my heritage. I see, you know, my world here. And I want to do this and I want to learn to make something and I want to have a dinner party. And in so many ways, it was so different from what existed And I think people had been waiting for it for a long time to feel connected to a brand in kitchenware, in home goods. I always say, you know, you've had this movement, I think, a little bit in fashion and beauty where brands, after a long time, have embraced, you know, sustainability and body positivity and heritage and representation. But home goods, kitchenware, food media, for a long time, I think it's still held on to this very exclusionary way in. And to me, what could be more connected to identity, heritage, connection than than home cooking, right? I always like to say, if you grew up in Pakistan, now I live in Los Angeles. If you come into my home today, I'm probably wearing a Western dress, not a Shalwar kameez. I speak English more fluently now than I speak my native tongue, Urdu. But you come into my kitchen and you know i'll make you a cup of chai the same way my mother did and the same way her mother did and when all else falls away love and identity and memory and connection live in food and home cooking and so infusing our products with that mission of sustainability of representation of belonging i think just touched people differently and and then they began to tell their friends and then they told their friends and and it grew in that way it's so powerful to speak about because i mean i think a lot of people's
0: homes do revolve around basically one pot that they love, that they cook everything in. Even they might have all the mod cons and like eggs, smoking, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then they just are drawn to something that feels like the heart of the home. Do you think that that's part of the success of your brand?
3: I think so. I think people want less. They want things they love that are infused with meaning. You know, I think most people have cabinets filled with clutter that they never use and that provokes a lot of anxiety around uh, what do I do with all these pots and pans and avocado slicers and very specialized things that I keep being sold and buying. And so just falling in love with something, it's kind of like, you know, yoga pads for the kitchen. You get... A great set of yoga pants and you're like you know what maybe I will go work out today and it's sort of the same philosophy with our product design is you leave your perfect pot or always pan on the stove and you're about to order your Deliveroo yet again and you think you know what it's right there I'm just going to whip up some eggs real quick and uh, it just inspires you to cook more.
0: Tell me about your own sort of relationship to food you mentioned you were born in Pakistan but What was the kind of kitchen like at
3: home? Where do those memories come from and how has that informed what you do now? I love food. My day is mostly moments between meals. I'm already planning my lunch as I'm sitting here having this wonderful conversation with you. But, you know, growing up, my mother never taught me to cook. She had grown up in a time and place where she was told that her only options in life were to be a wife and a mother. And she spent a lot of her life burdened by domesticity and the unfair burden that places on women. And so she would never let me in the kitchen. And every time I would try to go in, she'd say, No, 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 focus on your studies, because she wanted me to have a different life. And then I moved halfway across the world. And I couldn't feed myself. I felt disempowered by my inability to cook, I wanted to make something nourishing, I wanted to make something that reminded me of home. And so I set about learning how to cook and. You know, unlike probably every other kitchenware brand, it didn't come easy to me. It it was overwhelming and the amount of choice in products was overwhelming and and the ways that, you know, people were teaching you to cook from this very professional, chef-driven perspective felt unfamiliar and it took a while to really understand that cooking is so much more about trying things and experimenting and sensing and tasting and it can be a lot simpler And so that experience of learning how to cook myself as an adult has really been a big part of what's informed how we design products at our place, how we tell stories at our place, and just make it more accessible. We should talk about
0: Now Ventures, which is a fund you've been running that invests in other mission-driven startups. So. That's very interesting. You now have your own. But tell me about that kind of side of of what you're doing and who you've supported, how you
3: sort of choose who you might endorse and take through this journey. Yeah, you know, I think there is such a, a lack of capital and support for women founders, even today for underrepresented founders, for founders who want to build their businesses. Yes, of course, to be financially successful, but also while holding true to certain values and principles and this is something that I've been through that I've seen firsthand and and I wanted to do what I could to create a space at the table for other founders who were building businesses that were doing good in the world and that's really where now ventures came from and from that fund I've made over 20 investments today. Businesses like Pachama which provide carbon credits as a way to combat climate change. So a lot of the carbon credits process today is very manual. It's very hard to certify projects and make sure that they're actually driving the impact that they claim they are and then to make those available. And we've actually worked with them at our place to offset our carbon footprint by supporting reforestation. Businesses like Clio, which was actually the first business that I ever invested in, is female founded and it was really conceived of as a benefits platform for working parents. Working parents have to juggle so much and we still often do not provide the benefits and services that allow them to be successful at work and successful at home. And so Clio has become the partner for a lot of brands and corporations in the US to make sure that parents have access to customized benefits that allow them to succeed. And so investing in businesses that, yes, are successful in their own right, but also are making an impact in the world and building a portfolio that shows that financial success and impact do not have to be mutually exclusive. And, you know, in the 1970s, Milton Friedman famously said, the only social responsibility of business is to maximize profits. And, you know, here we are when we live in a world with accelerating climate change and a massive refugee crisis and you know not a single country in the world has achieved gender equity and so we know that we need to change how we look at the role of business and i think having role models for that is really important Sheza Shahid
0: the co-founder and co-ceo of our place there What really struck me about Sheza she was an amazing presence so calm so collected and with these mission driven objectives But she's created this sustainable brand. I mean, the Teflon-free values of this product are quite amazing. But also it's so grounded in her own love of cooking and this creativity and social mission as well that it really just reminded me of this wonderful... In fact, what Confect is really about, this idea of coming together and cooking with a bit of spirit and soul. Marcella, do you have any signature dishes that bring people together?
4: Actually, I have a very, I'm almost a little bit ashamed to confess it. It's a very, very simple dish. It's a high quality oven chicken and I can't explain why, but maybe it's because you can't get it like that in a restaurant. Maybe it has to do with the amazing smell that fills the kitchen when it's roasting. It's just for me, it's the perfect homey dish and it seems to be deeply rooted in my brain.
0: Jillian, this idea of ancestral cooking is something that sheza talks about, sort of, you know, reaching back into your heritage or connecting with your further back along the Dubai's line.
5: <laughs> is this something that happens to you? <laughs> well, I'm such a hodgepodge. Czech parents, but I was born in Canada. And of course, food is all about memory, isn't it? And uh, I left Canada when I was six. So my foodie memories of that time are when I was four, five and six, and they were quite magical, but quite simple. And it was in the summers. Every Saturday, we'd have a bonfire right on the point, which was surrounded on two sides by the water of a lake. It was the ritual, always the same thing. You'd go out and you'd find your stick, you'd sharpen your stick, you'd put a hot dog, and then you'd cut tootsies. And what tootsies are is you just do a little cross at each end of the hot dog. And when you put it in the fire, the, the little bits of the hot dog expand like a flower. And they're all crispy and barbecued. And it's that whole wonderful communal thing of everyone sharing in that magic of the moment when the tootsies come alive and it's conversation and it's singing. And then afterwards, the real treat is using the same sharpened stick that you found. You put your marshmallows on and you barbecue your marshmallows till they're toughy and burnt and crispy and gooey. Those memories that uh, to me are very, very special,
0: although I don't really recreate them in London very much. I was going to say, Primrose (laughs) Hill, how many tootsies are up there? What about you, Sophie? <laughs> well, my grandmother was from Yorkshire England and she was a great pastry chef and she would rustle up a lot of pies. I don't really like pie that much, but then when I do make the occasional pie and, you know, this flowery hands of my granny and I always think about it, sometimes it makes me feel closer to her when I'm just taking one out of the oven. It's a little bit nostalgic. <laughs> Next up on Confect Corner, we turn to one of the oldest human inventions, pottery.
5: People making pottery is nothing new, yet there continue to be dedicated potters who time after time sit behind the wheel to create something from scratch with their own hands.
0: Confect Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went to visit one such person here in London and have a good go herself.
1: It's both quite mesmerising, it's very tactile. You're creating a, something out of a, a formless mass of of clay and you know through your hands and the sort of marriage in a way between the the speed of the wheel and and the pressure of your hands you're you're creating an object which can both be functional and beautiful and i think you sort of fall in love with that really
6: Tucked away behind London's Victoria Station is something of a hidden gem, an ode to ceramics in the form of the glass-fronted Studio Pottery London. The space comprises a library of books on pottery, a shop in which you can purchase ceramics and the all-important studio, which is bright and calming with a hushed sense of busyness. I'm here today to meet the studio's artistic director Gregory Tingay for an introductory lesson on the wheel, but before I'm introduced to the clay let me introduce you to Gregory and his unusual background in the practice.
1: I first started when I was 15 years old back in Zimbabwe where I was born so I was taught then and later became much more established as a potter when I was a novice monk at Buckfast Abbey in Devon, where I was taught by the old lady, then she was 75, Mary Boys Adams, who was the the person in charge of the monastery um, pottery there. And she trained me up as her apprentice. She herself had been taught by Bernard Leach, the sort of, pretty much the founder of British Studio Pottery in St. Ives in the 1940s. So it was in a good lineage she taught me with um, (laughs) rigour.
6: Now to our lesson and on the agenda today, wedging or preparing the clay to be thrown on a pottery wheel, learning how to centre the clay on the wheel and throwing, which is when you pull up the sides of the clay in order to make a cylinder. I'm hoping to come out with something that more or less resembles a simple pot. But I'm also here to experience the apparent charm of using a pottery wheel. It seems so many people find that in the process.
1: Easy to use. So, what I'm doing here is just um, doing what's called ox head wedging. So, I'm sort of using my body to lean rock into the clay, I'm sort of down and away, and I'm rolling the clay upwards. You can see it here. As I hold the sort of horns of the ox. And I'm pushing with my hands, leaning in with my leg, my sort of left leg, rocking into it with my body, not too much pressure. And each time my hands are moving up and down and through and around. And it's gradually
6: First up, we prepare the clay to be thrown, kneading it almost like bread dough and then shaping it into balls. It's
1: a bit like, you know, sort of making meatballs, or if you're not
6: and keep it, moving, keep it moving. Next up, we head onto the wheel. So
1: basically, um, this is an old um, Fitzwilliam wheel, so good, sturdy wheel. In fact, this is the very first model that um, Mr. Fitzwilliam ag- ever made. Um, and these, unfortunately now, you know, he's long since making them, but they're very, very good, sturdy wheels, particularly for learning on because they've got this nice, um, big, blue basin around the wheel head, which is good for leaning and anchoring the arms on. And as you see, I've got a, a wooden bat here, which is fixed onto the wheel head with two pins, just sits quite nicely onto the wheel head. I've dampened it down with a little bit of water on the sponge, just to give it a bit of bite.
6: Studio Pottery London has been here since 2019, and it's the only pottery studio in central London. As we have our lesson, others mill about in the background, members of the studio who are here to throw, glaze, or fire their own work. But it's also somewhere open for lessons, to individuals and groups, and as corporate team-building exercises. Of course, those are accompanied by a glass of wine. Right
1: side, from the center. You've got to move your thumbs from the center away from the but you're not going upwards, you're it along the base, along the base, so, so you've got to open it up, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep the wheel spinning, stop.
6: Gregory demonstrates, then helps me go through the motions of making a simple pot, moving the clay up and pushing it down until it's centered on the wheel, then making a well in the middle and pulling out the sides until it's vaguely vessel-shaped before gently raising the sides of the clay until it looks like a wide, handleless mug. Each element has a number of steps and what strikes me about the process is how easy the repetition of these steps makes picking up a skill I had previously thought was out of my reach.
1: Pottery is one of those wonderful things which you, you can come to it completely without any experience whatsoever. And if you are taught a nice, steady technique, you can pretty much end up making a pot, you know, sort of fairly, fairly quickly um, it's nothing to be daunted at and if anything it's something that is worth trying because it's, um, it is manageable, I mean it's much less daunting than setting out to be a painter in oils on, or a sculptor or something, I mean in a way pottery is, is like other forms of craft, is, is something that can be learnt.
6: As I leave the studio that tired sentiment of finding catharsis in doing something with your hands in a world which is more and more digital can't help but spring to mind but I can't yet tell if Gregory's wisdom that the magic in pottery is found in the combination of utility and beauty is true
1: maybe a little thin in the base but we'll see what it's like. Um...
6: I'll have to wait until I go back to collect my fired pot to find out if it does indeed have either form or function. For confect in London, I'm Sophie Monaghan-Coombs.
0: Thank you, Sophie. Gillian and Marcella, have either of you ever tried to make pottery? Well, I
5: longed to be a potter. I just loved the fact of getting my hands into that gooey clay and creating something wondrous out of it. And when I was in high school, I finally had the chance because they had this great pottery studio. So I thought, here's my moment. We had to make a pot. And the whole point was that at the end of this, they would be presented at this big sort of exhibition for parents. The next day, I went to the exhibition, and everyone else's pot was there. Everyone's pot was there. I thought, did mine break? What happened? And then I went back to the pottery studio. Mine was the only one left there and it kind of looked like an ashtray and not a pot. It was a complete disaster. I have no idea. How can you go wrong with the pot? So that put me off for life to be a potter. And now I just enjoy seeing beautifully pottery, But it makes me realise it is difficult. You think it is quite intuitive and you can just, you know, enjoy
0: throwing yourself into it. But actually it's a real skill. Martella, I can see you at the potter's wheel.
4: <laughs> less i'm more into the painting and um i don't know these brush strokes which go up and down up and down on huge canvases or on walls it makes me just feel happy. So for me, it's this repetitive movement of brushstrokes and the concentration on colour.
0: I can see you with your brushstrokes and the colours. This is a whole new side to our (laughs) style director. We're finding out right now. I actually don't have
4: ambitions in in art, but for me, it's just enough to paint a canvas with one colour to do like a monochrome. But if you mix your colour Yourself and not uh, just take finished colors out of the tube, then this is for me uh, heaven. Every brush stroke is a different kind of yellow or orange or whatever.
5: Oh, sounds wonderful. What about you, Sophie? Do you like doing things with your hands?
0: I have a nice collection of studio pottery, (laughs) but I don't (laughs) tend to do it so much. I had an amazing experience recently on the beach in Dorset with my family, and we went down there and there was an almost sort of ready-made little pit of clay that we would just take some from and then we were all making pots in the wind on this beach <laughs> because it was just at the base of the cliff where... Obviously, the tide had just washed something away. It's interesting because it is the oldest form, and the pot is just so key to our civilization and cooking. and I really felt quite close to those people who created the first pots, and it's a very human instinct and anyway they had a lot of fun. Gillian Marcella, thank you for the moment. Coming up, we turn our attention to the art world and look at this year's edition of Art Basel. You're listening to Confect Corner. is Confect Corner and I'm Sophie Grove. Last month saw the return of Art Basel in what was the first full in-person fair in its usual June slot since 2019. And of course Confect's deputy editor Chiara Ramella was there to take it all in. Chiara, lovely to have you back in the studio for another installment of Culture Corner. Now there's a lot of discussion at the moment about inflation, the rise of the cost of living, and I'm curious to hear, does the art market feel any of that yet?
7: There was lots of discussion as to what was beyond the walls of the fair. When we were there, I went to the press conference and Mark Spiegler, who is the director of the fair, was talking about the Ukraine war. Remarkably, actually, he talked about how the process of vetting people who were invited became very serious, particularly in the case of people who are connected to Russia, and so checking where the money came from, essentially. But every single dealer PR that I spoke to was really enthusiastic about the level of sales that was happening. So it's kind of interesting how it doesn't feel like the art market has really taken that much of a tumble. I
0: mean, I saw you've written about the Hausenworth huge coup selling at Louise Bourgeois, Spider for £40 million. There's those iconic pieces that really define the fair. But there's also just a kind of shift in tone in a sense that a lot of new underrepresented artists are coming in earnestly to the market but also gallerists from places that you hadn't necessarily seen at Basel which I understand is quite an old-fashioned, certainly a little bit conservative in its taste and its tone.
7: First of all it's not always easy to bump into artists at Basel because it's a very market-driven occasion and artists don't usually tend to hang out very much there. As you say you know Basel is notoriously hard to get into, expensive to get into. You know, for a gallery to do it, you have to have the means to do it, and that's self-selecting. And it is the biggest, the most important art fair you can possibly do. So if you get a coveted spot in the main section, you're really shaping what it means to make the market. We have seen galleries come in from locations that perhaps didn't really appear before. Luanda, Guatemala City, You know, these are places outside the traditional art centres that can really reshape the narrative. And I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to an artist who's represented by a Luanda-based gallery, which is Yamek Contemporary Art. Her name is Helena Wambembe. She's South African. And interestingly, after I spoke to her, she went on to win the Balois Art Prize, which is the biggest prize you can win at Basel. She had this amazing
8: booth, one single art piece, and we can listen to her now. When you walk in here, it's supposed to give you the feeling of home and comfort and familiarity. So there are pieces that replicate my family home. There are couches, a table that we're sitting on right now. There are ceramic pieces, trinkets, monotype prints that replicate family photographs and imagery. There's a curtain, and behind the curtain there's a room that is dark, only playing a reflection of a memory. My work overall is very intimate. This is a representation of who I am and what I've been making all along besides Art Basel. I look at the history of the 3-2 battalion and the relationships of family and military history and and the military upbringing and the intimacies with history, with violence, with collective amnesia, collective memory, remembering So all these words that I like to play around with, I've never been to a fair this big before, and obviously it's the biggest in the world, but it is so interesting what people are making out there. The experience has been great. I mean, I met a lady who had bought like a piece of mine years ago, and then she's like, oh my word, I know who you are. This is so exciting, you're at Art Basel, you know, and she knew my work intimately. So it's also nice to put faces to people who were just either emails or just collector A or B.
0: Fascinating there to hear that moment of a collector meeting somebody that's created something for them.
7: Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's very important for that connection between collector and artist to take place, particularly to make the experience more personal, because when you can establish that kind of relationship, it can really change the way that you see a place like Basel, where you could go and feel totally overwhelmed and intimidated. Some of the artworks sell for millions and millions and millions of francs, euros. But then there are also things in the order of the thousands, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody can afford that, but it's definitely a big shift and it means that there's a much wider variety of people that can go there than what people perhaps may assume. When there is space for a dealer like Marianne Ibrahim, who is Chicago, Paris based, and she represents a lot of African artists, and she's been representing them for ages and ages and finally this time she's managed to bag herself a place in the main section of Basel. It's
9: a big deal and I was uh, lucky
7: enough to grab some time with her so we can listen to her now.
9: Basel has been a very long story because I was coming here as a visitor, as an art enthusiast, as a professional. So I had waited because I needed to Grow in confidence, I needed to have the right program, the right artists, and also making sure that the direction of their work would be something that would be highly regarded, highly critiqued, you know, and that's where I sort of decided to not confront that market is the most attended, the best fair in the world, so you basically have to come prepared. As a first presentation, you know, you kind of want to bring everyone in because I have to say that all of the artists are showing to Art Basel for the very first time. So together we wanted to show a curated booth around a thematic color, which is blue, which reference um, the blue notes and the musicality, the fluidity, the skies, the water. Also through different medium and different artists we wanted to have that common thread. And here we have the work of Amua Koboafo, Peter Uka, Joel Gibbs, Clotilde, Ayana Jackson, Carmen Nelly, Yukima Saida, just to name a few. But if I could have a bigger booth, I probably will have the entire program because we've been waiting for that moment to happen for 10 years. And every artist is very much excited to have come to those places of decisions. And that's what I mentioned before. It's not like I don't want anything to be given to us. It's just that we also want to earn the respect and and also want to be relevant in this art market.
0: The blue booth is really calling me. Tell me about that because it feels like a culmination of years in the making. Do you have any favorite pieces from that installation?
7: Well, the Amorako Brafo work was amazing. He paints with this Very dynamic type of style, even though the scenes are static, there is such a dynamism to the actual applying of the painting. And he had this beautiful scene of a woman reclining on a beach. I think it's also important to realise that it's not very often that a gallery will genuinely tell you, you know, I've gone through this whole process of curation of a theme around my booth. This at the end of the day is about selling and frequently the criteria behind what you bring at Basel is what is the best I've got? People will change the showing on a booth, you know, if they sell and then they want to sell more, they'll take some stuff off and replace it in a couple of days time. But that's also considered a little bit kind of new money. It's not really looked at very favourably by the old school galleries. So there's all these politics of play. Some people go and they know that they won't sell everything, but they're doing it deliberately to make a point because they have to really be bold about building up a specific artist or making the connections with, Museums, for example, who might not buy the piece there and then, but they want to start conversations for later on. So there are so many unwritten rules to the art market. It's quite scary. This <laughs> is behind the curtain. <laughs> but I think it's, it's very interesting because. We're talking so much about diversifying Basel and in the last few years, there have been so many conversations about do we even need mega affairs in the same way anymore? Can we do things that are more regional? Is there going to be bigger interest in smaller affairs that are more approachable, that do take more of a regional view? And there is a point to that, but I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive with something like this because... We're going to hear something from Alaya Hamza, who was the founder of Gypsum Gallery in Cairo. She could only do regional fairs, but it's very important that she does Basel as well, because it's about setting the standard globally. And she talked really interestingly about the scene in Cairo and what it's like for her to go to Basel. And we can hear uh, some of that now. Honestly, it's been amazing. I'm so happy to be here. We have a solo booth at the
10: feature section by a very, very iconic Egyptian artist called Ahmed Morsi, who's 92 years old and we're showing a selection of painting that uh, gives a glimpse into his practice. But we're also showing a really amazing work by one of my other artists called Besa Magdi in the Unlimited section. He is a younger artist, he's an Egyptian artist who's actually based in Basel. He's a filmmaker, a photographer and a painter, and this piece is very representative of his film and photo practice. It's kind of like a he said, she said, failed love story set against the backdrop of conflict. And it mixes images with non-sequential quotes that he has written. He uses a very, very special technique because he pickles all of his film, everything is analog. And he uses a household like detergents, Pepsi, whatever, to destroy the film stock. And then when he prints it, it creates this incredible array of color. The work is uh, 64 non-sequential pieces. It's very beautiful
0: very interesting there to see a sort of rejigging of the canon happening and also just the power of her presence there in Basel and there's so much talk about obviously the metaverse and this new sort of art wave that's happening online but I think just listening to her there reveals how important it is to be with the pieces and potentially the artist, as you say.
7: I absolutely believe in that. And actually, there was very little talk about digital world when we were there. It was just so exciting. People were so happy to be there. It was sunny. And there was really genuinely a sense of reconnection. This is a place where you can see works that then get acquired by MoMA. And then you end up seeing in the biggest museums in the world. I mean, this is the stuff that is going to become art history or is already art history. And it feels incredible to be part of a conversation that is shaping that. It's so special. And it's just not something that you can translate into a GIF, I'm sorry.
0: I love the idea of Bess and Manti pickling his film. Um, but let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Chiara, for joining me on Culture Corner. And now for a final thought, we turn to curator and writer Corinne Minette, who's been musing on all things chilled and how, while well, we can now dispense ice at the touch of a button, in the past it was a luxury bordering on folly.
2: Though ice is dispensed at the turn of a machine these days, it was once a luxury planned months in advance. In ancient Rome, the provision of snow drinks was noted by Pliny the Elder. Ice was imported from places such as Vesuvius or Etna in Sicily for chilling water or wine from the outside or by plopping lumps into one's drink like the cubes we know today. But because harvesting ice was labor-intensive and short-lived, at this time it was mostly used for chilled drinks rather than food preservation. Priorities in order, with pleasure over practicality. Large quantities of harvested ice necessitated storage in vast cool places known as ice houses. Larger than the top of your fridge freezer but smaller than a castle, these literal houses for ice go back thousands of years, documented across the world. Deep cavernous voids carved into the ground had protective and sometimes exquisitely shaped structures on top. In ancient Persia, yakchal spiraled up into beehive shapes to store ice in the deserts. At the height of 17th century Medici opulence in Italy, family hosted elaborate spreads, including frozen treats that had been prepared, molded and stored in winter for springtime feasts. Later, British 19th century buildings for storing freshly delivered Scandinavian ice resembled follies or were extensions to vast estates and country mansions. Ice saws, tongs, and picks were in use for practical food preservation, as well as flights of fancy. When technology developed for chilling and icing, so did ways to work with frozen liquids. In the UK at the end of the 19th century, a woman called Mrs. Marshall dominated the market with her molds and her cookbook, Fancy Ices. From asparagus to melon-shaped molds for flavored ice, this new technologically advanced frozen water became de rigueur at smart dinner tables. Fancy ices aside, the frozen water trade, as it was known, was in full swing in the 19th and 20th centuries, pioneered by entrepreneurs such as Frederick Tudor, known as Boston's Ice King, who shipped New England ice to the Caribbean. It was a bold, if precarious, approach to income generation, driven by his hunch for the demand for luxury carve ice out of ponds, lakes, mountains, ship it to hot places while it slowly melted, then sell to the upper classes for much-desired ice drinks. Tudor, along with other ice entrepreneurs, shipped frozen water to Cuba and India. Notably, 180 tons of harvested ice would diminish to just 100 by the time it arrived. Pleasure over practicality again, an industry inevitably replaced by modern technology. There's no doubt that the prominence of ice wagons unloading harvested ice in New York and London contributed to the art of the cocktail. Sophisticated drinks for swingers and dropped waist dresses would not have been possible without moving vast quantities of ice from winter landscapes such as Norway to city centers. An abundance of ice no doubt prompted the Savoy Cocktail Book of 1930, not to mention the author Harry Craddock's disdain for prohibition in America. Written on return to the UK, To escape said prohibition, his seminal and still frequently referenced cocktail recipe book contains 750 concoctions, developed while bartending at the Savoy. Along with recipes, he noted that ice is nearly always essential for any cocktail, and never use the same ice twice. Shaved, cubed, crushed shaken, stirred, on the rocks. Summer rituals of aperitivo and romantic dates in darkened basements would be nowhere without the art of the cocktail. Our fascination with frozen water lives on in modern hospitality. In Japan, ice connoisseurship supports this craft, elevating the cocktail experience to another level. If you've ever enjoyed a Centauri whiskey on the 52nd floor of the Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo, I'm sure you'll never forget it. The care, the attention to detail in selecting, preparing and crafting ice shapes that enrobe your drink in freezing temperatures from the inside out. As with any craft in Japan, ice selection and shaping as part of the bartender's repertoire are a serious business involving a canon of tools such as the ice saw, ice pick and ice carving knife. And in a way the frozen water trade is still alive and well in Japan Most bars have their ice delivered by companies that freeze it slowly, allowing for the crystal clear structure and density that prevents quick melting, which would otherwise dilute your drink. Bar men and women hammer and craft chunks into perfect shapes by hand. Rocks for highball drinks, shards, cubes, diamonds, flakes, even perfect spheres for whiskey. Ready-made cubes stand aside. A well-considered cocktail needs its own set of handmade icicles. So as you sip your ice cocktail, looking across an azure sea, a lush garden, or a constellation of city lights, consider its journey, not just the distillations of tinctures, but the very nature of chilled refreshment itself. From the delivery of glacial fragments stored in cavernous ice houses to the invention of the modern freezer, the ice that chills our drinks has had a long and shape-shifting history that mirrors humanity in its ambition and its folly.
0: That was the curator and writer Corinne Minat. Marcella are you a fan of ice in your drinks? I suspect the answer is yes. yes.
4: <laughs> Sorry, I just can't drink rosé, my actual favorite wine, without any ice cubes. It's just not possible in those temperatures, I think you can't drink this warm is official, wine. So
0: then we can put cubes of ice in rosé just yes. wantonly because I've heard there's a bit of a divided opinion about this.
4: Actually there is, but you remember we had a rosé tasting last year here at Confect Corner. Our guest was Chandra Kurt and she confirmed that when it's hot outside, it's absolutely fine to have some
5: ice cubes in your rosé. I think you can put ice cubes in rosé, but you can't put ice cubes in
0: champagne. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, that's just going a little (laughs) bit far. In
5: Italy, they call a
4: champagne with ice cubes swimming pool. (laughs)
0: Okay, well, that's actually quite poetic. (laughs) Gillian, tell me about your favourite iced memory. Oh, my gosh, I feel
5: so lucky because I went to Fogo Island on the most extreme coast of Canada, looking out onto the Atlantic Ocean. And the ultimate G&T is made with ice chipped off from glaciers, and they actually go out, and you can't actually get near the iceberg, a little bit titanic, dangerous, but they will have what they call growlers, and these are pieces of the iceberg that kind of fall off naturally. And you let them get close, and then you just literally start shaving and chipping and chipping and chipping away. And they take these back to the inn, and they make... Gin and tonics with them. Oh my God, I don't know if it's just heady because you know that this ice is thousands and thousands of years old or
0: heady because they use a lot of gin, but it is the most amazing gin and tonic. It is a thrill to see the most beautiful ice drink. And I think that's partly, I mean, I commissioned this essay and we were so inspired by the ice houses and how they feel so redundant. But, you know, there are these incredible structures around. In Iran, there are these desert pyramids that used to be stacked with ice in the winter for summer use and there's one in the bobbly gardens in Florence which is still there sort of completely you know dilapidated but at one point they were a lifeline to anything chilled and so I think it really reminds us of modernity and that wonderful moment when you sip a cool drink on a terrace is still um, such a wonderful sensation even with all the, the luxuries that modernity can offer. Well if you think
5: of it it is magical and the concept of ice is extraordinary and reading that essay I did find it was just amazing at the history of, of hundreds of years ago how they managed to
0: procure and transport ice. To hot countries and the actual folly the maverick sort of entrepreneurs mm. that had to do that because as they were in the boats it was melting <laughs> and you know they found an ice house not far from here in Marylebone underground it was a Georgian era so it's just absolutely vast in london they had it down it was all this norwegian scandinavian ice being shipped in i mean it's so multifaceted and i think corinne does a very good job of summoning all of those images so um, it's a lovely moment for summer and that's all we have time for on this episode of confect corner my thanks to julian DeBias here in london and marcella pallack in zurich for keeping me company once again the new summer issue of Confect Magazine is out now. You can find us in all good newsstands or get your copy delivered straight to your front door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Rabello and Paige Reynolds. This episode was edited by Antonio Fernandez. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening.